Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What are the hot topics in baseball and in the world of boxing? We'll get into that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 79 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern time to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 48 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional contents from the show on Friday nights on iTunes under The Bridge Sports Podcast or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text in to the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell didn't make any friends in New England after suspending Tom Brady for four games last season for his alleged role in Deflategate, and Patriots fans took even more glee when the commish had to present them with the Super Bowl trophy at season's end. It would seem that winning a championship would be the best way to eliminate some of that hate, but Pats fans are still a little salty about Goodell trying to get back on their good side. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. New England Patriots felt Roger Goodell's wrath in a big way when the NFL commissioners suspended their star quarterback Tom Brady for his alleged role in deflating footballs in a game the Pats won by 500 points. Brady responded with a middle finger tour for the ages and roots to his fifth NFL championship and surely relished the night Commissioner Goodell was tasked with handing owner Robert Kraft the Lombardi Trophy. Winning the Super Bowl was seemingly the only way the feud between the Commissioner and the Patriots would ever be rectified. But many Patriots fans will likely hold a grudge over Goodell for as long as he's holding the Iron Throne of the league. Goodell surely hoped that bygones would be bygones this season, and came out of hiding to return to Gillette Stadium for the first time since the 2015 AFC Championship game to take in some preseason football. But instead of flying under the radar and staying out of harm's way in owner Robert Kraft's box, the NFL took Goodell's appearance one step further with one of the PR workers of the league tweeting out a picture of the commissioner posing with three New England Patriots wearing jersey fans. The picture was met with outrage on social media, with some saying that it had surely been staged, or with Patriots fans saying the trio shouldn't even want to poke Adele with a 39 and a half foot pull. Of course, the names of the fans were quickly discovered, and their side of the story was also soon provided. 
That story involved a very brief conversation with Goodell about how their seats were and of the stadium before they were asked to take a photo. Like many would in a similar situation with an athlete or owner or coach that they supposedly hate from their couch, the three fans have no regrets of the encounter even if the NFL used it as a publicity stunt. In fact, all of Patriots land should be happy the photo was taken at all, just a short time removed from the season of Deflategate. It can only mean the New England Patriots would, unfortunately, start the season as defending Super Bowl champs. I'm John Lund, for Sports News, read like real news. Let's take a quick break to take a selfie. When we come back, we'll talk to columnist Jason Keidel about some of the current topics in the world of baseball, football, boxing, and more. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text into the bridge at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text into The Bridge. This week, we want to know, who is your favorite home run hitter and why? Some quick housekeeping for what's coming up. We've got five minutes in the film room to close out the show after our interview with this week's guest. But before we get into that, I wanted to talk a little bit about Flag and Anthem. Even though summer is winding down, you can still look good in its remaining weeks because we're surely in for a few more warm weekends to at least head out to the beach and have some fun with the girlfriend or your close friends over perhaps some beer or some other beach activities. Flag and Anthem is men's clothing for guys with an expensive feel at an affordable price. I'm busy enough with everything going on and would love to get out to the beach and have some fun. The last thing I want to do when shopping for clothes online is having to choose between price and quality and shipping and fit. And thankfully, Flag and Anthem eliminates all of that. They've got all sorts of options available from shirts and tees to pants and shorts, along with featured outfits for whatever season might be coming up as well. Go to flagandanthem.com and use discount code THEBRIDGE at checkout to receive 20% off your order. Free shipping and free return, so you'll be sure to find whatever the best fit might be for you. Again, that's flagandanthem.com. Discount code THEBRIDGE to receive 20% off your next order. Now to this week's guest and Jason Keidel, sports columnist for WFAN and CBS Sports and friend of the show, actually one of the first guests we had on the bridge. Jason and I will chat about the state of the New York Yankees and if the success of this season so far is somewhat of a surprise, along with some changes they might need to make for now and for the future. We'll also touch on the World Series favorite, the Giancarlo Stanton chase potentially happening, then switch gears to the Floyd Mayweather-Conor McGregor fight, and wrap up with some football talk, of course. You can follow Jason on Twitter. He's at Jason Keidel, J-A-S-O-N-K-E-I-D-E-L. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Jason Kaidel. He's a columnist for WFAN and CBS Sports and a friend of the show. Jason, thanks so much again for coming back on. How you been? It's an absolute pleasure. I'm doing great. How are you, buddy? I'm doing well, and it is an absolute pleasure. I look forward to when we get to catch up on sports, and there's plenty always going on in the sports world. And I thought we could get started tailoring the focus a little bit to start with the New York Yankees uh, team. We both love and one that in a small picture is still really battling for the division and bigger picture has come along a lot faster than I guess a lot of people expected and to hit on the latter part of that we got the sense in the last couple years of rebuilding process of sorts would have to be done developing some of the young talent they've been able to acquire and we've seen that come to fruition a little bit this season with Aaron Judge, Gary Sanchez, Torres coming onto the scene, Clint Frazier getting a shot, some younger arms in Montgomery and Sessa as well. 
And though everyone said they would be a year away, that process was put on the front burner in a way for this season, and they've exceeded that expectation at least. Has this surprised you at all in that the team has come along a little bit faster than we might have thought it would? Yeah, absolutely. And I would add one more name to that, Luis Severino. He's he's emerged as the team's ace. Well, nobody could have expected that considering how he's pitched in the last year or two. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, this was supposed to be a Mets town for one more year at least because the Mets had been to the World Series a couple of years ago, and uh, they were supposed to have uh, Stephen Matz one year later, one one year matured, one more year of seasoning, and uh, they were going to get Zach Wheeler back, and Matt Harvey was going to figure everything out. And they were just going to bum rush their way through the National League. That didn't happen, of course. So then the Yankees came on the scene. And next thing you know, in June, they're 12 games over 500. They're three, four games up on the Red Sox. So now the Yanks had gone from a surprise story to, oh, they're going to run away and, and win the World Series. Then, of course, the Yankees started playing like the way most of us thought they would. If anyone had told you in June that they knew the Yankees would be 12 games up and 12 games over 500 and four games up on the Red Sox, they're lying. But the Yankees gave us so much hope over the first few months. We thought maybe they'd keep this going. But, you know, just like any other team that has as many holes as the Yankees do, they came back to the norm. So uh, it was very important, I think, and this, not just the symbolism, but actually what it does for them on the diamond, making those deadline deals for Sonny Gray and Jamie Garcia because it shows that they weren't giving up. Although they have been slacking, they were terrible in June, not that great in July, uh, in August. They're just keeping their nose. It really hurt losing those last two games against the Red Sox over the weekend. They really could have put a dent in Boston's division lead, and then that hurt losing the last two games. But the Yankees are hanging in there, and I give them I give them a lot of credit for uh, not only fortifying their rotation by getting two solid front-end rotation pitchers, but also doing so and not losing the guys you mentioned, Judge and Sanchez and Hicks and all those guys, Frazier. And Torres, Gliber Torres, the guy who's not even there yet, who's supposed to be better than all of them. So I, I give them credit, and I think certainly they have uh, the wild card to look forward to, but I think they're going for the division because if anybody's learned, the Yankees, Pirates, you can have a great season and lose it all nine innings against a hot pitcher. So the Yankees don't want to just qualify for the playoffs. They've been there before. They have to win the division to be relevant. And like all teams, they've had to deal with injuries throughout the season. This week, actually, for the AAA squad, Starlin Castro will be coming back and working out with them. Right. Matt Holliday doing the same. And, of course, waiting on Greg Bird to maybe have some sort of impact if he were able to come back in September. Is that where the biggest hole might be that you could see as a short fix for this team and just getting everybody healthy and having them out on the field? Or is this more of a long-term thing where maybe some other holes can be plugged and they can look forward to 2018 as well? Look, I, I don't want to be a cynic, but yeah, I think 2018 is the year for the Yankees. I think they got so far ahead of schedule, we just got so enraptured in this fairy tale story that was the 2017 Yankees. They were supposed to be a year away, and all of a sudden they burst out of the gates with this big lead, this big record, and we all assumed, well, hey, why not win now? And God bless them. And God bless them for playing above their heads, and God bless them for getting these, these uh, starting pitchers at the end of the trade deadline. However, the Yankees, to a man, are not a World Series team. Uh, could they make some noise, maybe win a division series, maybe make it to the ALCS? Absolutely. But this is not a team that can beat the Dodgers. Uh, I don't know if this is a team that can beat the Indians. So uh, if the Yankees end up with 88, 89, 90 wins and uh, win a playoff series, I think it's a very successful season. I don't think getting Matt Holliday is going to solve all their problems. Uh, Greg Bird's been the only Yankee of, of the season for, like, Gregorius. All these people are playing way above their heads. Bird is the only one who's been a total dud. And, and Jacoby Ellsbury, of course. Um, but um, I, I think this is try to make as much noise as you can this October with really the main focus being on next year. What certainly helped in the success has been from the bullpen, both with what they had and with some of the acquisitions they were able to bring in, where at least on paper, games should be in good hands after, say, the sixth. But in real life, we've had some problems with that, with Araldis Chapman being one of the bigger ones, going from someone who was trustworthy years ago in big spots throughout the season to now being someone that has been blowing saves. We most recently saw that in the game with Boston on Sunday night, almost blowing one the other night as well against the Mets. Last do you, night. 
Right. Do you think it's time for Joe Girardi to maybe reconsider Chapman's role as the closer, maybe use him more on a situational basis or what he should do in that? Well, Girardi's, well, like any manager in New York City, has been questioned constantly over his moves. I mean, one of the places where he, he has uh, people have legitimate beef with him is the bullpen. Uh, you know, as you probably know, Joe Torrey was notorious for running his bullpen into the ground. Girardi is not quite as bad as his, as his mentor, but he's certainly obstinate when it comes to these things. Look, he stated just the other day this week, Aroldis Chapman is my closer. So unless we're talking about an epic biblical failure on Chapman's part, you know, would I mind seeing uh, uh, Dylan Batanzas closing games? Absolutely not. And you got to love the way Green is pitching. I think Green has struck out 23 of the last 35 batters he's faced. He's been incredible. So um, the Yankees certainly have options in the bullpen. Um, you know, I, I struggle a little bit with Chapman personally because I know what type of person he is, and, and it's hard for me to get past that. But um, if you're looking strictly from a baseball standpoint, I think you go – I mean, you pay him $90 million. You go with him until he proves he can't, and then you take it from there. Doesn't it remind everyone – how great Mariano Rivera was. Oh, yeah. Every game, pretty much. Yep. We never had these problems. For 15 years, we had the best close in the history of baseball. That's pretty good. Every game, he would come in to enter Sandman, and you just assumed victory. And we obviously know there like were that. times where that didn't necessarily happen. But even after sure. a blown save, you knew he would come back the next night and be just as dominant as ever. So it, it was definitely a security blanket, to say the least, and one every team certainly wishes that they had. Quickly on Aaron Judge. After his remarkable first half to the season, he's come back down to earth a little bit in the second half, and the strikeout total is through the roof. That said, I, I've seen slumps like this firsthand from him, from his days in AAA, and we saw it as well when he first came onto the scene last year and got some time in the big leagues. The drop is just something that I don't think a lot of people expected this time around after seeing him become so successful in the first half. And I'm not ready to sound an alarm or do anything along those lines. I think it's definitely something he'll be able to figure out. But it might be something in the short term that will help with him figuring that out. I don't know if that might be to have him sit a couple games, maybe drop down a couple spots in the lineup instead of batting third or fourth. Do you see any quick fix that can be done to help with his situation? Well, two things. One, I am tired of, and hopefully we've gotten past this point where we blame the home run derby for his problems. It's just absurd, okay? Uh, number two, he's a very young man. He's basically a rookie, okay? This is his first 162-game slate. Uh, this was going to happen. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with him. doesn't mean he's injured. doesn't mean he's psyched out. doesn't mean he's overwhelmed. It means he's a young man going through a tough time. You know, he struck out his first plate appearance last night, so of course he tied uh, former Met Adam Dunn for the most games in a row with a strikeout in Major League history at 32 games. Um, but you know what? If he strikes out a couple times and hits a home run and goes one for three, I think the Yankees and their fans can live with that. You know, he, he's going to go through some tough times. He's still hitting, what, 286, something like that? He leads the, the American League in home runs. He's having a monster year. He's a rookie. If you told anyone in April, that he would have this kind of season up through August, they would have taken it. But when you juxtapose his first half against the second half, it looks like he's going through a terrible time. He'll get through it. You know what? You're probably right. Maybe he should take a couple of days off. Maybe he should get a breather. Um, but, but short of that, you know, just let the kids swing through it. Looking a little bit big picture, especially from what we recently seen with the Red Sox and Yankees series in Yankee Stadium this past weekend, Boston is a team that already went through that rebuilding stage, if you will, and has a lot of young talent on the roster and will for many years to come. And when mm -hmm. they came back to New York this past weekend, that playoff atmosphere that's long accompanied the series seemed to be back. And you can almost get the sense that the Yankees-Red Sox rivalry that you and I both know very well that's been dormant pretty much all of this past decade – is on its way back. Do you get the sense that we might be headed that way with both teams having such young talent and both teams expected to perform quite well in the years to come? Yeah, absolutely. I wrote an article about this recently where I said that uh, the the series, the, the white-hot rivalry between them has sort of sagged a little bit on an emotional level, uh, and especially the the overwhelming historical vitriol that's existed between the two teams, especially... Uh, from the 90s, Pedro Martinez, uh, A-Rod, Jeter, 
up and through the early 2000s and, and even past that, up until the Yankees in 09, the Red Sox were in 2013, there was a bitterness between them that was befitting the rivalry and befitting any great rivalry. You know, it's not just a matter of where they stand in the standings. It's also about how the teams feel about each other. And let's be honest, New Yorkers and Bostonians love the fact they they revel in hating each other. And that's the part that's been missing. So without getting criminal about it, I said I wouldn't mind if somebody uh, accidentally on purpose threw a fastball to somebody's ribs, if uh, somebody took a stroll towards the pitcher's mound, like I said, without getting out of hand or absurd or anybody getting seriously injured. Um, I I think a lot of fans miss that. But part of that is a lot of guys from Boston and New York who were part of that left. So the young kids have not been indoctrinated in the in the rivalry, which I think is the greatest in sports. I think it transcends uh, Michigan, Ohio State, Notre Dame, USC, uh, just just pick your rivalry, Giants, Cowboys, anything. I, I think it's the greatest rivalry, Duke, North Carolina, it's the greatest rivalry in sports. And I think as the teams, the young kids develop into stars and get used to playing each other, I think we'll start getting that edgy kind of baseball back. So I agree with you, yes, and I think in a year or two it'll be back to where it was. You mentioned the home run derby, and one of the participants that has not struggled at all from participating in it was Giancarlo Stanton, who's been on an absolute tear this season, so much so that there's already discussions now about him possibly chasing home run records when the season winds down. And what I found interesting about it was Stanton's comments the other day saying that reaching 62 would be the most exciting number for him to get to, not saying that he would, but that it would stand out among the other ones, which is interesting because Barry Bonds, who holds the record at 73, was his hitting coach for a couple of years. So obviously Mm -hmm. they don't really see eye to eye when it comes to that. Where would you stand on Stanton if he were approaching 62? Would that make him the home run king of sorts in our eyes, or does he have to reach Bonds 73? Yeah, would 62 make him the de facto home run king? Uh, in my eyes, it would. But, again, not to sound like a cynic, how can we be 100% sure of Giancarlo Stan? I mean, God bless him. I'm sure he takes incredible care of himself. I'm sure he works out 35 times a day. But, I mean, when you see somebody built the way he is, it's not his fault. Just based on the last 20 years, 25 years of baseball history, you have to be a little cynical. Again, it has nothing to do with the young man. I have absolutely no proof anecdotal, direct, or otherwise, that the man has done steroids. But when you see somebody as muscular, as fit, and as strong as somebody like Stanton, a baseball player built like a middle linebacker, it does arch an eyebrow. Um, But let's assume for the moment that he's absolutely clean uh, and has never taken a performance-enhancing drug in his life. I hope to God he has not. Uh, Yeah, in my mind, secretly, would I consider him the home run king? Absolutely. But there's nothing baseball can do about that. Unfortunately, that ship has sailed. And they have nobody but themselves to blame for that. Do you think we'll see the support of the media if that chase were to come in that we know that sports media overall that covered Barry Bonds, for example, didn't necessarily care for him during interviews throughout his career? And we're now going to have the commissioner of baseball who wasn't around for that. Is he going to come out and support and maybe go to the game where Stanton might get 61 or 62? I think it's going to be interesting to see how that's perceived if we do end up getting closer, I don't know if it will be seen in a different light, if it'll get put on the back burner, or maybe the media as a whole will maybe draw some inference to this. I'm sorry, you said who would attend the game possibly? Rob Manfred, the commissioner oh, the of baseball, because okay. he okay. wasn't technically around for when Bonds did it. And we know Bud Selig was all over the place in, in the 90s and early 2000s having to attend all these milestones. Yeah, I mean, might he do it in a cosmetic, perfunctory sense? Uh, he might, but... Think of the position he's in. How could he possibly say, now Giancarlo Stanton is the home run king? He can't do it because that would be such a slight against his former employers, his colleagues, the sport, his former boss, Bud Selig. Uh, even if he feels that way, as as may perhaps I do, perhaps maybe you do or others do, he can't officially take that stance because it would be it would run so counter to everything that has happened over the last few years. It's just not something he can do politically, publicly, or otherwise. Um, but it would be a nice gesture. I'd love to see him do it. And it would be sort of an implicit wink-wink to Stanton saying, you've got the record to heck with Bonds and all the other juicers, Sosa, McGuire, et cetera, uh, Conseco. It would, be, it would be a nice gesture. I, I wouldn't mind. 
Mm-hmm. And I hate to say it, but sorry, the the, um, the record book has become so synthesized. Unfortunately, these numbers, baseball as we know, is so tethered to numbers more than any other sport. Unfortunately, some of the damage, some of the debris of the steroid era is the fact that the numbers just don't mean as much as they used to. I hate to say it, but it's the truth. Right, which is definitely going to make it interesting, especially with a newer demographic of baseball fans that probably don't remember the Sosa McGuire battle of the record when they went after it. And we'll see what happens if he's lucky enough and stays healthy enough to get to that plateau. Once we get into the postseason in October, is it really at this point the Dodgers World Series to lose? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Not only because they're having such a lot, I think they're 50, officially 50 games over 500 now, not only because of that, but because the Dodgers have been so tantalizingly close over the years, right? And then they always find a way to lose it before they get to the World Series. And the Dodgers are such an epic foundation franchise. I mean, selfishly, I still wish they were in Brooklyn. Not much I can do about that. But the Dodgers are so important to the sport. You know, let's be honest. These, these coastal cities that have huge populations matter, okay? Not only, uh, to, to use your phrase, not only for the demographic, the population, but also what they represent. I mean, there are two huge, maybe three if you want to include Chicago, major cities of industry, Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York City. If you want to throw Boston in there, that's fine. Uh, But we need these franchises to do well. So when the Dodgers are good, it's good for baseball. When the Yankees are good, it's good for baseball. When the Red Sox are good, the Cubs, et cetera. I mean, it's not an accident that the Cubs and Indians did incredible ratings last year. We need old school, old franchises to do well in this sport. So, obviously, this all this all pivots on Clayton Kershaw. If they're just holding him out to keep him ready for the postseason, great. If there's something wrong with him beyond what we already know, then that's a serious problem. Will they win this without Kershaw? I don't think so. But with Kershaw, I don't know how you can bet against anyone but the Dodgers unless you just want to base it on their recent history. Since you're a huge boxing fan, I have to switch gears and wrap up a little bit by asking about the Floyd Mayweather Conor McGregor fight coming up in really a couple Saturdays. We're almost there. We had that four day press tour uh, last month with them throwing jabs at each other, and we'll surely get more media buildup in the coming days. Does this fight have any juice for you? Are you excited for it at all to see them go at it? Yeah, I am. I am excited because. Uh, one, I'm just a fight fan, so it's going to be fun to watch regardless. Um, and obviously I'm paid to cover it, which is a nice little bonus. But also because it'll be interesting to see if Mayweather's lost anything. Look, all things being equal, considering all the concessions McGregor's made, he would have no chance in a boxing ring with boxing rules against Floyd Mayweather. I mean, people have been fighting for 25 years professionally for 10, 15 years, can't lay a glove on this guy. Now some MMA fighter's supposed to knock him out? Of course not. But it's been two years since Mayweather's fought. So he's at that age. He's actually beyond the age when fighters get old. So has he lost a step or two? Has he lost a reflexes? Can a punch land now that wouldn't have landed two years ago? These are all questions that can only be answered in the ring. So I think it makes for interesting theater. I, I mean, look, some of the stuff they said during their four-city press tour was, was hideous. The misogyny, the homophobia, it, it was terrible. But you know, it's all part of this big soup of, of public of, of publicity, and they're trying to sell the fight. And um, you know, so far, other than uh, other than some of the ticket sales we're seeing to have been sagging, you know, it's got people interested. A lot of people say they aren't going to watch. They are going to watch. They just feel like they have to take the stance that they're not going to watch it. But uh, I find it I find it very interesting. And then you've got a classic great boxing match a couple of weeks after that between Canelo Alvarez and Triple G, uh, Gennady Golovkin. That's going to be a fascinating, wonderful fight. So. Boxing is, is far from dead. Uh, it certainly was on life support for a few years, but I think it's making a nice little resurgence. It'll never be what it was in the 70s and 80s, but boxing is still relevant, and it's, it's always nice to know that. Depending on who loses this fight, whether that might be Conor McGregor or whether it's Floyd, do they have more to lose by losing? Does the sports that they fight for, boxing or UFC, have more to lose? How do you see the end results playing out over both the fighters and both what they fight in? Oh, Mayweather has, if I understand your question right, uh, Mayweather has exponentially more to lose than McGregor because McGregor made all the concessions. Uh, let's let's flip the script for a moment, and let's say Mayweather had agreed to fight UFC style, uh, and McGregor kicked his butt. 
Mayweather would just say, well, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a cage fighter. It's not what I do. He'd be using his rule. So it's kind of like that. May, uh, Mayweather is Mayweather has made all the rules. He's getting most of the money. He's got all the rules in his town, uh, his arena. Everything is, is contoured around his needs, his desires, his appetites. So if Mayweather would lose his fight, it wouldn't affect his 49-0 record technically, but it would taint his legacy forever. Absolutely would. If the check was large enough and we would get a miracle of sorts for Mayweather to lose, could you foresee him coming back for one more fight in boxing to maybe get rid of whatever tarnished legacy he might feel he had with a loss? Mm. He could, but I think the damage done to a lost to Conor McGregor, the damage would be irrevocable. I don't think coming back and beating uh, Paulie Mal- I mean, I'm just throwing a convenient name out there, fighting Paulie Malinaji or Manny Pacquiao again would not resurrect or erase or eliminate the damage that would be done by losing to Conor McGregor. That's not something he could recover from. Because you have to remember, it's not just his boxing style and his boxing record. It's his hubris, his bravado. Mayweather said he's the greatest thing that's ever happened. He's not saying he's the greatest fighter of this generation or this decade. He's saying he's better than everybody. Muhammad Ali, Sugar Ray Robinson, all these guys. They have to maybe be a real boxing fan to understand how ridiculous that assertion is. But still, he is 49-0, so he has some right to make that argument. But if you were to lose to a guy who's never fought boxing professionally in his life, no, he could not brag again for the rest of his life. I'm sure we're going to talk again once football season rolls around, but do you think oh, I can't wait. Do you think the Jets are going to win you at least a couple of games this year to give you something positive to write about? Well, thankfully I'm a Steelers fan, but I do have to cover the Jets professionally. In fact, my next column will be about the Jets. The Jets are as bad and this is not hyperbole, this is not an emotional New Yorker because I'm not a fan of the Jets. The Jets are as bad a professional football team as you can possibly assemble right now. The Jets are almost 1976 Tampa Bay bad. The, the, a lot of people are wondering if the Jets will challenge the 1992, I think it is, Seattle uh, Seahawks. It's either 91 or 92. For the worst offense in history, the, that Seahawks team, I'm pretty sure it's 92. The 92 Seahawks scored 140 points in 16 games. I'm not a math whiz. I think that's eight points a game, something like that. And that includes defensive touchdowns, special teams, all that stuff. So uh, the Jets, the Daily News, the New York Daily News had a wonderful thing the other day. It said the Jets are the only team in Madden, John Madden NFL 18 that doesn't have one player with at least an 86 rating. Now, you know, millennials will relate to that. But, that, I mean, just think about how horrendous that is. The Jets have one star, Matt Forte, and he was in his prime four years ago. The Jets are just beyond awful. They had a guy booted out of practice, Christian Hackenberg, who I'm sure you know from Penn State, because he couldn't break a hole properly. Who does this? <laughs> it's going to be a long, long season for any Very. Jets fans. Thank God the Giants are here. Thank God the Giants are competent. Right. They should do well. And I should also ask as well about your potential optimism or should be optimism for the Steelers this year if they should remain healthy. It seems like everybody's back that has high impact. Martavis Bryan is returning now to throw him into the mix after missing a year. How are your thoughts looking as far as the Steelers season might go? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I hate to say it. I'm one of those fans who's always pessimistic. I always assume the worst about my favorite teams. Um, but I, I am, I am a bit oddly optimistic here with the Steelers. I really like what I see. I think they fortified the defense a little bit. Um, they've had some misses certainly when drafting some of these linebackers, but, uh, I like where they're going. Uh, I think when you have this, that holy offensive trinity with Big Ben, Antonio Bryant and Le'Veon Bell, if they all stay healthy, they're going to be incredibly dangerous. Like you said, Martavis Bryant is back. Um, they're going to be incredibly dangerous. I love that kid they drafted from the University of Pittsburgh, Connor. That was a wonderful pick in the third or fourth round. I, I, I forgot which round they picked him. But that's going to be uh, – their offense is going to be just special. Um, if they can keep the other team from scoring a lot of points, then the Steelers are going to do a lot of work. Look. You can pencil them in right now for the AFC North, barring any catastrophic injury. And uh, I think you can pencil them in for the AFC Championship. The problem is there's this team in New England and Foxborough, and they have this quarterback who just owns us. I know the Rooney family owns the Steelers, but if you do enough Google searches, I think you'll find that Tom Brady also owns the Steelers. That's the problem. 
We need we need a team. Look, the Steelers have been in the Super Bowl three times in the last since 2005. Each time, all three times, the Patriots got knocked out before we had to face them. So that's what we need to happen this year. So I need the Ravens. I need the Chiefs. I need somebody to knock out the Patriots before we get there. That is amazing because you think about how great Tom Brady has been, obviously, and how great Big Ben has been for the Steelers in that I think they've only faced each other in the playoffs once since they've both been in the league, which you would expect yep. them to have a Peyton Manning, Tom Brady-esque clashes throughout the years, and we've, we've never Good gotten point. Great point, buddy. And uh, it really burned my butt because it was the year before we actually won the Super Bowl, 2004, we went 15-1, and one. Big Ben's first year, 15-1 and one we go, and we had home field advantage and everything, and we'd actually beaten the tar out of the Patriots earlier that season, and yet they came into Pittsburgh and just waxed us. I mean, just destroyed us at Heinz Field in Pittsburgh in front of our fans, our crowd, our weather, our everything, and they just destroyed us. You know, they beat us so bad in the last AFC Championship, it looked like we weren't even trying. And I think that speaks to coaching. I don't want to go on about the Steelers, forgive me, but uh, Tomlin is a – I like Mike Tomlin a lot. I think he's great at getting the guys psyched up. I don't think Tomlin's necessarily a great X's and O's guy. And considering he's a defensive coach first, that's how he made his bones in the NFL, I'm really disappointed that he hasn't done more to confuse or bewilder Tom Brady. They say the Steelers are going to blitz a lot more this year. Uh, whatever works, fine. Just we need to find a way to get to Tom Brady. And for the majority of the other teams in the AFC, it's pretty much just playing the waiting game for Tom Brady to finally hang it up, especially within his own division. We actually have seen that aside from the Dolphins. I think the other two teams have decided, like, we're going to make trades and maybe get better for two or three years down the road, where the Dolphins are in a win-now mode, and I don't know if they forget that Tom Brady is going to play them twice and would probably face them again if they should make the postseason. But Again, that's for another day because to close with you, I thought we could just touch on briefly since we last got together, the Mike and the Mad Dog 30 for 30 premiered. And I know what they meant to you as a New York resident getting to listen to them throughout many years on the radio and such. It was well recepted, definitely, when it came to New York City and New York in general. Maybe not necessarily the numbers they hope to get throughout the entire country, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it should have been longer. I wish it was, and seems to be the general case in sports media as well, that people definitely enjoyed it. What were your thoughts about getting to watch that and flashing back to those days for Mike and the Mad Dog? Uh, Oh, it it was absolutely wonderful. Um, I actually got to the Mike and Mad Dog uh, bandwagon a little bit later. I hadn't been listening since 89 when they came on. I was more of a television guy, but then, like I think I told you before we came on air, that I'd driven a tractor-trailer for a number of years. So that's when I started listening to Mike and Chris, which was, I'm going to say, 15 years ago, and uh, it was wonderful. It, It was wonderful, and you could see how many sports talk show hosts, radio hosts, have sort of incorporated a little bit of Mike or Chris into their radio persona. It's really a compliment to them. I spent an hour and a half in Mike Francesa's office about a month ago interviewing him because I'm going to write a, a feature on him before he retires. I'm really excited about that. And he was very candid. He was very nice. There was no questions I couldn't ask him. Um, I, I think their mark on sports media was indelible. It was indelible. And I think... Uh, they should get more credit than they do. And there is no ESPN radio. There is no sports talk radio without Mike and Chris. And that's one hell of a legacy. And the final question was going to be to tease any major works you might be coming out with in the next weeks or months. And you just answered it. I'm pretty sure everyone will look forward to that Mike Francesa column. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody can see my work on uh, CBS New York, WFAN.com. I also write two weekly pieces for CBS Local Sports. Uh, dot com and uh, yeah, uh, Mike retires December fifteenth, so I have to get in touch with my editors and see when they want to do this. Uh, I'd like to have the piece run perhaps uh, mid November, maybe early December, sometime around the time he retires. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, I hopefully hopefully they'll run it on the mothership cbssports dot com. Um, I'm pretty proud of one thing, and, and you know, there's no way, no reason people would know this. But I've ri- I wrote the only boxing feature ever to make the front page of CBSSports.com. They have 30 million viewers a month or something like that. It was about uh, Manny Pacquiao and Mayweather. It was, it was a 
of a, about a 3,000 word feature wondering if this was the last great boxing match. Anyway, it was the only feature ever to make the front pages the mothership and i was pretty proud of that so hopefully hopefully the francis piece will also make the mothership right well two big shots at that with the mayweather mcgregor fight coming up and and maybe the mike francesa piece as well so fingers crossed yeah. on that mark i'll obviously attach everything that you're up to in my show notes as well to let people know where they can find your stuff and as always it was a pleasure catching up with you about the world of sports i know i like to do a lot of interviews with sports media folks and talk about their careers but it's also nice to switch gears to talking about what's actually going on and i'll let people know as well previous conversations we had so they can learn more about what you've been up to getting up to this point as well so always a pleasure hope we can do it again soon and thanks for dropping by jason all right thanks a lot buddy it was a pleasure thanks again for jason for jumping on on some very short notice now it is time for another installment of five minutes in the film room with joe Burris. joe and i have been teammates on the basketball court sports editors for our college newspaper and hosts for the prestigious john and joe sports show and since joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it he now holds the reins to five minutes in the film room and don't worry there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films and we'll have a better idea of what will be in store for you if you do. This week, Joe will break down Detroit, which Rotten Tomatoes describes as the gripping story of one of the darkest moments during the civil unrest that rocked Detroit in the summer of 1967. You can find Joe on Twitter at Duke Mish. That's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews at cupofjoe.com, but add a dash after cup of. So that's cupofjoe.com, C-U-P-O-F dash Joe. Without further ado, here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is Five Minutes in the Film. Catherine Bigelow is not only one of the best female directors in the business, but one of the best directors in the game, period. She earned acclaim for her Best Picture winner, The Hurt Locker, and cemented her legacy in 2012's Zero Dark Thirty. This time, she takes on the Detroit riots in 1967 with her latest theatrical release, Detroit. The Hurt Locker took us into the lives of a bomb-defusing task force in Iraq, Zero Dark Thirty delves into the hunt and eventual killing of Osama bin Laden. Detroit gives us the battle on the home front. Could Bigelow handle the change in scenery? Let's go to the tape. Bigelow is no stranger to tension, so her directing style was an easy fit for Detroit. The intimate camera work creates a claustrophobic feel, key to the plot of the film. The camera is often in the faces of the characters to capture the fear, dread, and pain in their expressions. At a time when racial prejudice was high, to say the least, the importance of capturing emotion is paramount. In 1967, racial tensions flared, leading to tragedy at the Algiers Motel. The movie is dramatized and pieced together by those involved in the horrific events. Although it's based on a true story, I don't want to spoil it. It was powerful for me to go into it without living through it or even knowing the details. With such an important topic, Bigelow collects more great talent and gets the best out of her actors. Anthony Mackie and John Boyega deliver good performances, as we have come to expect. Jason Mitchell, who plays Eazy-E in Straight Outta Compton, gives another solid effort. Jacob Lattimore also shines, as well as Will Poulter. Although I've seen him successfully portray a good guy in The Revenant, Poulter has a knack for capturing the evil in a character, which he does here. Game of Thrones' Hannah Murray also turns in a good performance, making you realize she is, in fact, in other things. If not the best performance in the film, Algie Smith's turn as the lead singer of the dramatics is the breakout performance of the movie. He has an amazing voice and great acting range. His performance stood out to me more than the others, and I'm excited to see him act in the future. Obviously, Bigelow had a number of characters and plot lines to handle, unlike her other films, which have a main character. This is an ensemble, and she balances the stories beautifully. Most importantly, Bigelow doesn't tell a story that white people are bad and black people are good. She tells a realistic story which shows righteous men and women and evil men and women. It also shows the in-between that some are good intention but fail to do anything to help the cause of an abysmal situation. It shows all sides. It doesn't show a bias to a specific race. It's a real film, an emotional film, and also a fair film. 
Now, I'm lucky enough to have grown up not surrounded by racism and lived in a household where any kind of prejudice based on race is unacceptable. The way people thought back then, and unfortunately how people still act today, never made sense to me, but it happened. And it's happening. At age 27, and in my corner of the world in northeast Pennsylvania, I don't see it. And I think that means a lot of people don't see that this is how it was, and that we are still not past it today. Unfortunately, recent events have shown us what can come of racism, but it's also movies like Detroit and The Imitation Game that show us we should be better, or history will keep repeating itself. The bottom line, Detroit gives us the mastercraft that we've come to expect with Catherine Bigelow. Is it better than The Hurt Locker or Zero Dark Thirty? No, but those are two of the best movies of the past ten years. The intensity and great acting capture the gravity and reality of the horrific events in 1967. The events that unfortunately mirror the recent catastrophe in Charlottesville. It's sad we can't get past our differences after hundreds of years of violence, but maybe that just makes this movie all the more important. I'll rank Detroit as Derek Fisher. He's not Kobe or Shaq, but without him, the Lakers don't have five championships. Sexy. Shaq! Good. Uh, check, please. We'll close out the show with America's fastest growing sports segment called Good Try, Good Effort. Here we'll briefly mention some of the instances from throughout the week when a team or a player or a coach meant well but didn't quite meet those expectations. First up, good try, good effort to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The stars of this season's Hard Knocks on HBO, the Bucks raised eyebrows during the 2016 draft when they traded up to take a kicker in the second round in Roberto Aguayo from Florida State. He only missed one field goal during Florida State's national title campaign in 2013, and though he didn't miss an extra point in all of his three seasons with the Seminoles, and consistently was one of the best kickers in college football, it was still a head-scratcher of a pick, something that only escalated when Aguayo struggled mightily in his rookie campaign in the National Football League. One that finished with the worst field goal percentage among kickers making more than five attempts. That prompted the Bucks to sign Nick Folk to compete for the job in 2017, and it didn't take him long to take Aguayo's spot. In Tampa Bay's preseason opener against the Bengals, Aguayo did make a 20-yard field goal on the opening possession, but later missed an extra point and a 47-yard field goal in a 23-12 loss. Because of that, he was informed that he would be cut Saturday morning. Folk, on the other hand, made his only attempt of the game of 45 yards. Now, Aguayo will try to rectify his sophomore season in Chicago after the Bears picked him up on waivers the following day. Good luck. Next up, good try, good effort to the Duke men's basketball rafters. After Marvin Bagley III finally made his selection of Duke after a drawn-out process on national television, the number one recruit of 2018 also surprised viewers when he revealed a number 35 jersey, even though it was then hanging in the rafters of Cameron Indoor Stadium after it was retired for former Naismith Award winner Danny Ferry. Assistant coach Jeff Kappel and Ferry talked about bringing the number out of retirement months ago if it would help land Duke's next star, and he agreed. Even though a retired number has never been worn for an entire season before. Duke has retired 13 numbers in total so far, leaving just 23 non-retired numbers available for active players, since no college player can have a digit greater than five. The last players to have their numbers sent to the rafters were my favorite player, J.J. Redick, and Sheldon Williams in number four and number 23, respectively, 10 years ago. Ferry, for his part, played 143 games at Duke from 1985 to 89 and appeared in Coach K's first three Final Fours. 
The former six foot ten big man is sixth on the Blue Devils all-time scoring list with 2,155 points and is one of only four players in program history with at least 2,000 points and 1,000 rebounds. Ferry also holds Duke's single-game scoring record with 58 points against Miami in 1988, and he also won the Naismith Award as the National Player of the Year following that season. After a 13-year NBA career, Ferry then served as general manager of the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Atlanta Hawks and is now the special advisor for the New Orleans Pelicans. Now, Ferry will get the chance to watch his number back on the court while Bagley can enjoy wearing the same number he donned in high school. And lastly, good try, good effort, pitchers in the major leagues. Miami Marlins slugger Giancarlo Stanton belted home runs in six consecutive games to get to his total of 44 as of this recording, which also includes a home run in 11 of 12 games and 23 of 35 games overall. He now needs 17 home runs in the remaining 44 games to tie the 61 that Roger Maris hit and was and is still viewed as the home run record. So if that were to happen again, we definitely have some fascinating things to talk about on the bridge. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Friday night. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, and on the TuneIn app on Wednesday nights by searching for Sports Radio America. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dive into some Major League Baseball, chat about the NBA, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.